Welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This is episode 320. RTC Wake. And this is Phil Parada, Tom Lawrence, and Tony Bemis. So, RTC Wake. Now, as, as our listeners may have noticed, we've been gone for quite a while, so we decided it would be funny to use the uh, program RTC Wake to come back from hibernation. Yes. Yeah. Scheduling was difficult, but uh, we, we all got our heads together and are actually recording this later than expected because we had to have a conversation about how we schedule and go further. So the good news is we, we came to that decision. <laughs> <laughs> the, the number of episodes you see in the future will let you know whether or not we stuck to said decision. <laughs> <laughs> but much discussion was had about it. That is uh, getting a bunch of people together. Um, and we're still one short. We don't have Jay. Jay wanted to be with uh, – he couldn't make it. So we're going to start doing some of these remote so we can get a more schedule. That's kind of the short answer of the result and just all the banter that went on in between. <laughs> That's right. So for the last uh, – what has it been, a month now since mm-hmm. we've been around? So what have you guys been doing? Well, um, my wife and I are going to have a kid. Oh, so we've been doing, uh, thank you very much. We've been doing a ton of house projects, uh, getting ready. It feels like I haven't slept since, um, (laughs) I've replaced all the appliances in the kitchen. I'm building a crib out of a bunch of wood that I have. When Uh, is the expected date? Uh, October. We're going to have a pumpkin, Uh, a little, a little Halloween baby. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. I've got, uh, the crib building specs from, uh, one of the government foundations. Um, mm-hmm. So making sure that I'm doing the right thing and all of that. It's exciting. Very exciting times. It sure Fun is. Fun stuff. And I'm sure everybody's told you this, but uh, life as you know it will change. I already don't sleep, so this will be an <laughs> interesting change. Yeah, but you won't sleep, but you won't be doing the thing you wanted to do, <laughs> not sleeping. <laughs> right. Like, yeah, I don't sleep. I play video games all night. Well, that's going to end. <laughs> Kids, you know, it's random though. So some kids are noisy. One, my, one of my children was a little bit noisier than the other growing up. I don't know why. One mm-hmm. like slept well, and everyone's like, "I'm like this fathering stuff's easy." Then I had the second kid. <laughs> you know what? Would, it would be a real kick in the pants if they decided they wanted to become a Windows administrator. Ooh. Oh, I don't, I don't know what I would do. Love only goes so far. <laughs> <laughs> Look, by the time they're old enough to make that decision, Windows may not be a thing. I was just about to say that. <laughs> Who knows if Windows is still going to be around? Who knows? It, it'll probably more likely Windows might be around, but it, you, it'll only be known in uh, like in Azure, in the cloud. Yeah. And uh, no on-prem administrators anymore. The next podcast I have queued up is uh, a dive into why so many companies are moving away from AD altogether. And I know a lot of companies that don't mm-hmm. use it now. Um, I wonder when services. we're going to get the... Uh, Linux subsystems for Windows. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. You mean the other way around, the Windows no. subsystem for Linux? That's what they call it now, to yeah. run uh, yeah. the Linux kernel inside of oh, Windows. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's a matter of time. Look, they said it's the last version. It's because it's going extinct. That's why Windows yeah. 10. <laughs> ah, enough dogging on Windows. So that's what I've been doing. How about yourself, Tony? Uh, I have been playing with uh, the Home Assistant stuff, and uh, I tried a couple of different ones um, just to get them running, and it was near, near impossible. I think I talked a little bit about this last time we were talking. So, but I got uh, I went back to the Mozilla uh, Web Things project, and it's been running that, and it's it's working pretty good. 
I've been getting, I found these really cheap Z or uh, Zigbee uh, light bulbs on Amazon. Ooh. Uh, and they're four bucks a piece. Nice. They're LED light bulbs. And uh, the average price on Amazon is $9 a piece. And then if you go like to a store, they're like $12 a piece. So to find them at four bucks a piece, I was like surprised. So I, I bought uh, eight of them so far. Um, so replacing light bulbs around the house, the kids like playing with it. <laughs> the kids love playing um, with lights. We'll just throw it out there. Right. <laughs> and then I got, uh, my, uh, X10 home automation stuff working with it also. Hmm. Now, I don't know if, if you guys have used X10 or know much about it, but I don't, what X- is it? X10 is it home automation or, or, uh, uh, what do you, it's household automation stuff. Yeah, it's it's over power line. So it's power line communication. Um and it's uh it's kind of finicky. You have to buy extra hardware to get it to to send from one phase to the other. So like every house has two phases. Yep. So to get it to cross the panel, you have to buy this extra hardware to do that. Um and then, but I tried to hook it up. I could not get it to get out of the circuit that I was on. Like I, I got it to work within one circuit, but I purposely split up my house to different circuits. And then now X10 just won't work in my house because of that. Oh, so I started reading online and or not reading. I was watching this video, and the one guy is like this expert on it. He says so it works pretty good until you start introducing uh, switching power supplies. Um, like that's pretty common at this point because x10 you got to think about it started in 1970 or 74 or something like that so it's been around for a long time and uh, in a lot of commercial uh uh, buildings at that point but uh yeah and he started listing off yeah if you have uh like a lot of computers on it or uh if you have those uh um uh, compact fluorescent light bulbs oh, or LED yeah. light bulbs. They, they all have noise. switching light bulbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, yeah, frequency. Yeah, like you said, the noise. And uh, and I'm like, well, that's my entire house at this point. <laughs> yeah. So I think I'm going to uh, sell my X10 stuff. So if there's anybody out there that wants to put together a, a legacy home automation <laughs> stuff, uh, <laughs> I've got about two hundred dollars worth that I'll sell for fifty bucks. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's been fun, uh, and then just work. And my birthday's coming up at the end of the month, so we're making oh. plans for that. Exciting, cool. but yeah, it's the big four zero this year. Ah, uh, big four zero. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, got a couple of years on you then. Yeah. Because uh, I'm also expecting we're gonna have another grandkid. <laughs> congratulations yeah another one so like i said i'm in a different you know phil's have his first kind of covering the whole age bracket ranges here (laughs) for those you didn't know i was that old (laughs) um someone someone thought i was in my 30s and i said well thank you but i'm not (laughs) did you watch the amount of gray hair and i had my videos like (laughs) anyways um fun projects though we went all in on bitwarden I love the Bitwarden password manager. So you run it here in the office? Yes. Cool. We went with a uh, lockdown locally hosted, not publicly exposed, behind a VPN. So mm-hmm. our threat risk has gone from, oh, yeah, LastPass is secure. I feel as though it's secure. But what if to 
I think Bitwarden Secure went through a code audit, what if, to, it's behind a VPN, so if they do find a flaw, I would go, well, that's terrible. <laughs> I'm glad it's behind my VPN. Right. Um, <laughs> and because we're using it specifically for the business, uh, anyone who uses it, the matter of fact, um, then what they've been doing is switching back and forth. They have their personal stuff now just in LastPass, because that was always a pain, switching between LastPass personal, LastPass business for them. It's capable. But now with the Bitwarden, it's made it easy. They have LastPass for personal passwords, and now they have Bitwarden for the business ones, and now everything's uh, easily separated and controlled and my staff has the ability to VPN in here but wow it is just really nice I can't believe like for an 100% open source project uh, I hate to dog on some of them but sometimes UI is secondary thought when it comes to those type of products in open source and I've actually looked at another one the UI is tragically bad, and uh, it's called like Team Pass. A few people have suggested it to me, and I'm like, N- n- no, no, this is it, maybe it works well in the back end, but it's definitely the front end <laughs> needs some love. But mm-hmm. uh, Bitwarden, both sides, uh, back end is really good, front end is really good. The one complaint I have of it, they based their database on Microsoft SQL, which is weird. What? It runs on Linux, it runs and you can run it in Docker. They have, mm-hmm. you know, it's all open source. Now, there is. Uh, Bitwarden RS, it's Bitwarden re-implemented in Rust that has either the option to run Postgres or MariaDB. I believe those are the two options in it. Um, it has a couple others, but it will it breaks the dependency of having to rely on the Microsoft one. We didn't go with that because I wanted to go ahead and stay with the main uh, stream. It's kind of a side project where a couple of people have started. But overall, my experience with it has been wonderful. Um, Is it, it a uh, client-server bot? Base or is yeah. it like a standalone no, file server. Have to copy your... It works. Oh, okay. a picture working like LastPass in almost every way. Matter of fact, it works like LastPass Enterprise uh, hmm. more so than it does. So you create like a shared um, collection, is what they call them. And anything you don't share passwords individually, so the, it's not the same object relationship. Where I, if you treated one password as an object inside of LastPass, and I could share it with Phil or share it with Tony. You have to be first part of the collection, and then that password, every password thereafter added to that collection now, uh, or that company grouping, they have a couple different ways you group them, but you have to be part of that. And anything I threw in there now gets shared with you. So mm-hmm. it's actually a nice system for it, works really well for businesses. It can work for personal too, because you would just create a family collection. Um, but they have a free version. So for people that want to use their hosted servers, their instance, they have um, relatively, roughly a little bit less, but not much less than LastPass if you want to use full featured um, version. But the uh, overall, I really like it. Now, the one thing, it doesn't seem to do the form fills as nice as LastPass. They're improving them. But form filling is hard. I think LastPass just has the edge of they've been doing it for a long time. And uh, they're good at matching stupid websites and the field naming they use because Mm-hmm. I, sure, it says put name here, but someone used some crazy variable behind the scenes, so it has trouble figuring that out. Right. That's the granted. But as far as password management for its core function, that works wonderfully. Um, cool. So that's been really a, a, a success project and haven't had any problems with it. Uh, it has full built-in support for Let's Encrypt uh, if you want to run it on standalone server as well. So they've integrated all the features like that. So that. They did a great job with their Docker container. Is it like a web? Um, oh yeah, it's a all web, web. UI. Yep. And is there a phone application? Oh yeah, uh, there's even command line apps. So you oh. can they allow complete scripting from the command line, um, and this is even without self-hosting it. If you use their server, uh, you have complete from the command line ability to uh, write applications around it. They built like tons mm. of it. They got a desktop app, phone app, Mac uh, app. So every 
avenues covered and with nice UI. They did a good job on all of it. Like I said, it's actually very usable from an interface standpoint, very fast. Um, now, the one weird thing about it is if you – even the self-hosted version, unless you want to go through the source code, which someone did do this, um, they have licensing fees. Their license fee for the self-hosted is for certain functions, they ask you pay like $20 a year. It's really minimal fees. And someone pointed out that their key generator is in their code as well, and they're aware of this. They're making it as open source as possible. Um, and some people did take their key generator out and to get around it and just generate keys without having to buy the license. Mm. I went ahead and bought the license because it comes with support too. It's not just a license. It actually comes with uh, support and things like that. So That's pretty funny. I think it's funny that they did that, but they're they're – whole key system is removable um, or extensible, but I didn't worry about it. I, it. They're so inexpensive. And for the amount of features you yeah. offer and the updates they offer for it, I'm like, I, I like supporting the project. That's I like cool. companies that transparent, and I don't think they have a problem um, being that transparent. Because they know there's a lot of people like me who go, cool, I know I can, but I won't. <laughs> Here's some money, guys. Um, yeah. Other thing I did was uh, 10 gig stuff. So behind your head is a Mikrotik switch, which a lot of people have asked me to review. I kind of get the why people like them. Their interface is disgusting. Um, which which one of the interfaces it is is disgusting, well, Tom? That that's the problem. Uh, <laughs> the, the fact that there's not just multiple interfaces. We'll go a step further. There's multiple operating systems on some of them. Mm. So uh, Switch OS is manageable to get the job done and. Uh, it, the problem is what made me. What the reason it's finally on my shelf uh, was because at one hundred and thirty-four dollars for a four-port, ten-gig switch, yeah, there's nobody else in the same category. That that's amazing. I can't buy used equipment of brand name equipment that'll match the price that they have on some of their ten-gig stuff. Yeah, they make a twenty-four-port uh, with four ten-gig for under two hundred dollars too. So mm. a twenty-four-port switch with four ten-gigs under two hundred. That is like a crazy price and this thing is tiny it looks to be like six inches by eight yeah. maybe yeah that's a really small one so i'm kind of getting in understanding a little bit better why people like it and it's just it comes down to pricing on it it's it does what it says it does um the downside is it doesn't do certain things very well so it does have router functionality and everything one thing i've learned makertech throws everything in the kitchen sink no matter what the product is um in there because they use that they try to use the same software but that also causes the problem of what the what is all this and why is so much of it here why is yeah. the, it's also hard to figure out what functions like the wi-fi menu is in that that by the way doesn't have wi-fi which led to an argument online where someone said it did i'm like oh no no you have to look at the product listing because just because certain features are available in the ui no relationship to whether or not they actually work on that particular piece of hardware <laughs> you would think it would do a hardware discovery and then just turn modules off all you gotta do is spend five minutes reading through their documentation and errata updates and you're like okay this was kind of cobbled together this company's really good at hardware and um they write some software <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> So, but for, I, I don't think I'd ever use them as a router. And a lot of people have asked me to do, cause there's not a lot of good documentation on how to use them as a router. I mean, if dude, that supports BGP and everything for $134 and you can buy their $49 ones to support BGP and everything. That doesn't mean you should use them for BGP. I'm going <laughs> to throw that out there just because they integrated it. Um, but uh, for switching functions where I'm not worried about security as much because it's just functioning as a switch and VLANs are pretty well documented and a well understood standard by many, um, they seem to get that part right. <clears throat> so setting up VLAN segmentation, I didn't find any way to VLAN hop out of it and uh, it's routing at 10 gig, which is was the goal of the project. Cool. 
So 10 gig all day, man. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, Let's go to emails. Um, Oh, yeah. So we got an email from listener Scott. He says, love listening to the show on his way to work. Uh, Thank you very much. And um, just like I responded with in the email, I hope this one finds you well. And he, he also asked if we could send him some stickers to Canada. Absolutely. They're in the mail. Get ready for them. And if you, dear listeners, also want some stickers, send us a GPG encrypted version of your address to show at smlr.us. Yep. And I'll send you a handful of stickers. And if you don't know how to do GPG encryption, still send us an email and we'll we'll teach you how to do it. Yep. It's pretty fun. Yeah. So we're not we're not requiring people to send us their email or their address via PGP or I would I would like them to. If we're going yeah. to send stickers somewhere and pay for postage, the least someone can do is use GPG for a moment so we can decrypt their message. And um, the next question is, well, how do they uh, – who do they encrypt it to? Um, you can encrypt it to uh, fill at smlr.us or just show at smlr.us and we'll come up with a way to get our key out there. Yeah. Um, um, for me, I've made it easier. If you go to lawrencesystems.com on our contact page and our IRS page, both is the same link, um, to send me an encrypted message without even understanding how to use PGP. We've got, we use Keybase and our keys, uh, we have Keybase and we have the um, public key on there so it can encrypt things for people to uh, make it really simple. Mm-hmm. That's slick. I like that method. I highly recommend. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, we all use Keybase. So, and that, and I love Keybase. And it's using the PGP key up for mine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. If you haven't signed up for Keybase, Bill. You're a little late. I thought I saw you. are on there, aren't you? I thought I saw you on there. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, um, I'm, I could do – I've done – I need to do an, an updated video. I did a video on Keybase. It's one of the easiest ways to talk encrypted to people um, because it doesn't require phone numbers. Like I love Signal, and we use that on the daily here at my office. Mm-hmm. But it uh, requires people to know my phone number, and that is not something I plan to put out there publicly. Uh, so Keybase has been my other way for people that want to contact me and encrypt – uh, messages back and forth because it has group chat options um, and everything else. I I actually use it for all my m- huge numbers. Of my infosec friends have all joined on Keybase now. So yeah, because they have uh, encrypted chat moons and they don't call them disappearing messages. They have much better terminology called exploding messages, which I like better. <laughs> exploding. <laughs> they're, they're they're disappearing messages though. You're right. <laughs> so we got an email shortly after the last one uh, when we were talking about the home automation stuff. Yes. And uh, Dustin suggested we check out the self-hosted show. Now, I remember hearing uh, – so self-hosted is a Juni- – uh, uh, what is it called? Their network uh, – uh, Jupiter, Jupiter, Broadca- Jupiter, Jupiter Broadcasting. Broadcasting. Yes. And uh, I, I remember hearing them talk about starting a new show, but I never clicked over to listen to it. Uh, so I checked it out, and I really like the show. It's yeah, like right up our alley and, and doing this kind of stuff. Yeah, I love all the self-hosted stuff out there. It's it's always fun to find uh, different self-hosted little projects. As a Bitwarden, like I said, that became wow. This is and this is where you know there were companies that went above and beyond to actually do a good write-up on how to self-host it. So I do like stuff like that. What else do we have? Uh, we got an email that our uh, OG audio format feed doesn't validate. Um, this is from uh, listener yeah. Dave. Um, I looked into that, and it, it is – so Dave said it was because of the plugin we're using, and I completely agree. 
uh, we're using the uh, Blueberry yeah. uh, WordPress plugin to do the word the feed. And what it does is it puts in two uh, um, pictures, two image files into the feed itself and the and it's not a standard in the standard it does it calls for one picture not two mm. it's i think it's because one is for itunes and then another one is like the blog um we should just image. get rid of the og because we're only publishing an mp3 right now well it's it, it's for both feeds oh, are actually failing oh, okay it. he Got just it. checked the og one Got do it. you hate freedom tom Hey, the license expired, so it's free now. <laughs> MP3s are free now. Right. So then uh, that also brought me thinking about uh, the website update. And, uh, and I know we had a few people uh, email us. And yes. we are still in the process of discussing the direction we want to move with that. Yeah. Meaning we talked about all sorts of stuff before the show except for that. Yes. <laughs> We, we're still trying to figure out, like, to get us together to meet for the show. Yep. That was uh, that. You know, in, in Tony made a comment before just recording some of the pre-show banter, uh, all the legal stuff anyways, the stuff we can talk about that doesn't require NDAs. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's an iterative process. Yes. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot that's uh, behind the scenes. And because all of us work deep in tech, we all have um, – well, war, first part of the thing we do is talk about war stories. <laughs> Do you know what I dealt with this week? This guy deleted a core switch. You wouldn't believe what kind of company would do that. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. What else we have here? I think that was really it, other than someone saying we were a little news heavy. But that was actually – we covered that last time. So that was a while ago. Yep. I think we're all good on emails. Yep. We're all caught up. All right. Oh, no. We had one more. He's saying no, wondering why uh, it's been so long since we had the show. Yeah. Well, I think we answered Scott. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But we did talk about that. So thanks for uh, emailing in, Scott. And um, uh, so, uh, yeah, key base us your address. We'll get you some stickers or PGP. My key is published out there. So uh, if you want to just send it to me or Phil, wherever, whatever makes you feel good. And if you don't, we'd still like to hear from you at show at smlr.us. Yeah. All right. So moving on, uh, the latest distros or updates. So I saw that we have, uh, there's a free NAS update. Yes. 11.3. Yes. I just did a video on that. Um, the highlights are massively redone ACLs. Uh, mm -hmm. So when you're doing uh, Samba shares, it actually automatically converts uh, to their more advanced ACL system, so you can get really granular. And the default now turns on uh, what it presents to Windows as is VSS. So now Windows users attaching to the share can buy themselves without talking to the administrator, <laughs> can roll back to previous versions of files and everything else. Now it presents VSS, but it's actually based on the BSD snapshots in the back end. The oh. big bonus to this, of course, is they're immutable. So because they're controlled by FreeNAS and their snapshots, they may roll back as many times as they like, but they cannot delete or manipulate them. So uh, if they uh, something horrible happens to a user's workstation and it ransomwares all their current files, the VSSs will not be affected because they are immutable. That's so, awesome. Except for those uh, people that I've dealt with who decided to make the domain administrator the same administrator for FreeNAS, and uh, then they lost their FreeNAS too. That's just a horrible uh, idea. I preach against it, um, and people tell me I'm wrong, but um, that person doesn't think I'm wrong anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I got one person who's a believer now. 
one group. Mm. Anyways, uh, it's a great system, though. Overall, I voted on a bunch of our We are slowly working to upgrade clients to it. Uh, so do you remember the one laptop per child yeah. project? So this is a project from when, what, 2010? 2000, no, from before some, that, 2005, oh, yeah, I think. Yeah, it feels like it, in my earlier days of tech, the OLP. <laughs> feels like back in high school, you mean? <laughs> OLPC, <laughs> right. And it was uh, the, the it was uh, laptops that were supposed to be under 100 bucks yeah. for kids and you know, underprivileged or uh, or areas that had that couldn't get technology easily. So if you bought one, then you pay $200, but then somebody else across the world would get one also. Uh, and it was a really cool idea, and I got to play with I knew somebody that had one of these, and I got to play with it a little bit. It was kind of like, it was a kid kind of operating system. Well, they've got a new update on it. I haven't heard anything about new hardware, so I don't know whether it just mm-hmm. run on your laptop now. But um, it was based on Fedora, so I, I'm wondering if it stayed with that. Yeah, I don't know. But it seems like the Pine Book kind of solves some of those. It feels like that fits more into no. alignment with what they're trying to do. I uh, Jay would chimed in right now. Was, I think I didn't watch it yet, but I know I just seen him release a video. I think on the Pine Book as well. I mm. believe he's gotten one. Um, I'll bring this up. I don't use it, but everyone asked me to, and I still haven't found the killer feature that makes me want to switch. But um, the OpenSense has a new version. OpenSense is a fork of PFSense. Uh, they didn't like the PFSense UI or had some disagreement. I know there's some uh, controversial history that I'm not going to dive into, but it is a fork that has a lot of the same code base but a completely different UI. And my challenge has always been the fact that they um, – I think it might be a fun hobby to play with it because there's so many updates. From, from a business standpoint, that's why I haven't used this because there's so many updates. The yeah. cool thing is it looks like they added VXLAN, and uh, I think that's kind of cool. That's a uh, – if you're not familiar with what – so you have VLANs and you have VXLANs. Did mm. you ever learn about those, Tony? No. So it's it's an extension where I can do things, and uh, XCPNG has this as well, where I can uh, build a VXLAN. It's like a private virtual encrypted type of VLAN that can cross networks that are uh, separate from each other. So similar to a VPN, because as uh, not, so VLAN mm-hmm. separate networks, but aren't necessarily encrypted. So if someone's on a trunk line, they could sniff all the traffic within it. But a VXLAN has encryption layers inside of it as well. Ah, that's so, interesting. And it supports more than uh, the 4,096 you know, VLAN problems. So if all you right. need more than 4,000. You can share <laughs> VXLANs cross data center. Yes. Neat. Yes. And uh, because of their encryption. And that's one of the reasons they built uh, support into it to XCPNG, and that's what I've been playing with, because you can not only you can share it between data centers, and you can also share it between uh, resource pools of XCPNG. So if I have different colos in the same building or even not in the same building, I can build different pools and share data between them in an encrypted manner. Hmm. And it's just it, because of the way it works very similar to a VLAN, uh, but the, I don't know, X makes it cooler. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why the naming schema. <laughs> I know what it is. I don't know. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, it's a, it is a really cool service because uh, you don't have to route. That would be the words I'm looking for. You don't have to route, so you just extend the LAN. Ah, that's what it is. Ex- extended yeah. LAN, ah, virtual extended um, LAN. I didn't yeah. read this. I I may have discovered this on my own. <laughs> It's a very Michael Scott moment. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. I've, I've seen letters. I think that's what they mean. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> enough of the goofiness. Kelly Linux. 
if you're not familiar with Kali Linux, uh, many of uh, the security researchers are. It's a great distro for having all the hacking tools in one place, but not your daily driver, by the way, because everything runs as root. And uh, they have a new version for 2020. Except in this version, you no longer run as root oh. by default. Oh. I should read the notes. <laughs> 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 this is no more. Oh, well, you're right. The default credentials have been – oh, uh, and the default credentials are changed too. Exciting. Um, allegedly, we'll start with, with that. I will admit a lot of people do run Kali Linux with the default credentials, even people who try to hack other people in security. And they allegedly hack back because they said frequently script kitties don't change the passwords. And they said <laughs> shutting down script kitties is easy because they always leave them the same. That's funny. Hanging out with security people is fun. <laughs> That's cool. Ah, so Raspbian has an update uh, to uh, February 5th. Um, it's just an updated build of Raspbian. Uh, that's pretty cool. Um, I don't use the Raspberry Pi desktop, so this has little effect to me other than getting upgraded packages, which is always nice. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not a big desktop user of the Raspberry Pi desktops at all. I always use them for not desktop-related things. Yep. Uh, I've got it. We had two at my house running uh, as a desktop, and uh, I really like the the Raspbian. Uh, and what was their desktop? The um, Raspberry Pi desktop is yeah, what they but, call it. It really looks like XFCE, but yeah. like a skinned up version of it. I thought it, they actually had a name for it. And it doesn't support uh, X to go or things like that very well either. There's some other little quirkiness we found with it. I did a video and have uh, the workarounds on how to get things like X to go working on a Raspberry Pi. There's ways mm -hmm. to do it. You just can't use the actual desktop. There's a few. Yeah. And oh. you can't just connect to Display Zero on it because it doesn't have the proper graphics rendering drivers. Tony, they call it Pixel. I yeah, think. Pixel. That's yeah. it. Yeah, it was Pixel. And uh, I, I tried to, I had to hook up a printer. And that was the hardest thing I ever had to do in Linux. Because you would think that it would just work. Like the last 10 desktops I've used, you could just browse and well, There's probably a binary a problem from ARM to the printers. Is that correct? Well, no. Cups was available to install. It just was not installed. Oh. Now, here's so, a question. So apparently for you, the last time you had to set up Cups was recently. Last time for me was back in college. And I, I like LPR and LPD, the line printer daemon, oh, a too. lot better. When was the last time you touched cups, Tom? I haven't had to do anything because with Ubuntu, uh, our printers are, well, they predate Phil's high school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what Our uh, HP, whatever, we have an old HP, and we have one newer one, but both of them are running standard LPD, so they, uh, the Ubuntu finds them perfectly fine without even loading any drivers or anything. It just discovers them on the network. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I was, I was hoping when I sat down to print, and it took me an hour to... Oof. figure out what to install and to get it to install and then connect to the IP address. And it was, uh, hmm. some work. Yeah. When it's, uh, <laughs> well, I'm currently running pop OS, but I think it works the same in Ubuntu. I just tell it to go find printers on the network and it scans it and does. it adds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And my, my mint, it was just like, Oh, there's my printer. I, anyway, I print very little. I do know that something about the way they do the drivers, they are slower on Linux than they are on Windows. So Windows computers print immediately to the printer, and uh, the CUPS drivers, they send the job immediately, but they seem to take a long time before the print kicks out the 
printer blinks for a little while. I've been I really dug into the why. I just think it's some type of driver optimization. I've yeah. noticed that too, but same yeah. thing. But it works, think, gets it done, and I'm never waiting for something to print impatiently because I send it and like I, I don't want to get up off my desk because the printer's not in my office. <laughs> I just send something and before I leave, I grab whatever it is I printed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's mine. Does that too? I've noticed it's, if it's something an image or a PDF, it takes forever to print. But then if it's just like text, then it's it prints extremely right away. rare I ever print though. Yeah. So yeah. You know, people are Maybe trying to sell us paper problem. here at my business. We last case of paper we bought was about four or five years ago. We bought a case. Four, <laughs> and we, we it's almost halfway gone after five years. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I think that's all the distros and a printer right. talk we can have for one day. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, we're gonna move on to the news. Now, you're probably going to notice a little bit of a different format than what we've done before. So we're taking some of the feedback and uh, our feedback from some of the listeners. And one of them was that uh, either we're just rambling through news and it's nothing new. Or uh, my take was that maybe we're going too fast and, uh, and we don't get enough banter in between stories. So we're going to switch this up and we're going to yep. go like kind of a round robin uh, talking about the stories. Yeah, and I'm self-aware. I talk fast, so we're going to make Tom pause. <laughs> you guys know how much coffee I drink? <laughs> Are you ready for me to go? Yeah, All go right. ahead. At long last, WireGuard VPN is on its way into Linux. And I'll, I'll have a quote from Linus over here. Can I just once state again my love for it and hope it gets merged soon? Maybe the code isn't perfect, but I've skimmed it. And compared to the horrors that are OpenVPN and IPSet, it's a work of art. And I will admit, you know, there. I think it has I, OpenVPN. Besides its dependency on uh, OpenSSL libraries and things like that, has over a hundred thousand lines of code. I believe is where it's at right now, and I believe there's four thousand in WireGuard. Uh, so there's advantage mm-hmm. one. Advantage two, running in kernel space, not user space, is going to give you some speed advantages. Um, I'm all excited about all of those things about WireGuard. I think you guys had mentioned it the last episode. You both had uh, done some testing with it. Yeah. 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 When we were at the Ohio Linux Fest, that was tons mm-hmm. of fun. We spent maybe uh, an hour playing with it. Most of that hour was figuring out how to build it and then share keys to each other. And but, we, we did a, a completely manual setup of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, so I'm wondering if there's uh, an easier way, or maybe uh, maybe that's what's going to come soon with more adoption. Then there's going to be like easier GUI versions. Yeah, and I, I the other advantage it has is you know uh, not dragging along legacy code um, because there's a lot of backwards compatibility. When I look at the pull down in OpenVPN, for example, I can support things that I shouldn't be able to support, like three des and things like that, like really old encryption um, algorithms. So. There's that advantage it has, but the other side of it to me, because people ask, when are you going to start deploying this? And I always answer the same, when it's been code audited. Just because Linus thinks the code's pretty, I care about when security researchers, very qualified ones that are good at doing pen testing, really take time and make sure there's not some major flaw, some major hole before the thing that protects me from the uh, bigger internet as a whole, uh, and I encrypt all my bits on it, um, mm-hmm. I want to make sure that that's been vetted. So I, I hope it goes through code review, and even by their own admission, you, I don't know if you know this or not, but it, you can't even submit a CVE for it because they said we're in the beta. That's right on their own site. There's no CVEs. Because someone said, hey, there's no CVEs. I'm like, yeah, good. Did you read the they're like someone didn't believe me in that and i was like no read what the author said we are still in beta that's why you can't file a cve if you know a bug let us know we'll fix it yeah <laughs> it's not a released product yet it's not like switch your architecture to it it would be interesting though that what kind how many of those kind of bugs have been submitted 
you know, or, or will be once it goes to, um, you know, a full version. Yeah. Well, it, well, if songs are fixed beforehand, they can't submit them, but you, it's, yeah, it's still a, uh, well, the reason I'm, I'm wondering is because that's, uh, and what people bring up to you is that's like the, the standard or the known way of is something secure, you know, is there, right. is there already a bug, a security bug filed against it? And since that's not made public, yeah. Uh, or or maybe I just don't know where, or most people don't know where to look for yeah. this project. Yeah, you have to go through because it's you know it's developed in the community open source, so there are bug submissions for the tool. Mm-hmm. I believe it's on GitHub. I could be wrong. It's on their website though, um, but so you kind of have to follow along on there. But um, I, I just see this massive push and all these different open uh, these companies that are supporting VPNs have it support like the privacy type allegedly privacy type VPNs I'm not going to qualify any of them but a lot of them are offering WireGuard as an option which is cool and for that use case probably that's pretty good um, we don't know of any known flaws where you could just eavesdrop on a WireGuard the, the, the crypto seems solid that they're using mm-hmm. on there but before I would say run it in production it's how I'm going to tie sites together yeah, I'm going to wait till it's gone through a proper code review. <laughs> yeah. So then you might think, well, how does this work? Um, and it's it all does uh, encapsulation over UDP, um, and it works similarly to SSH. Um, you configure your WireGuard interface. It, I think it's like WG0 or something yeah. is the default one that Tony and I got mm-hmm. when we played with it. And then um, you have your private key. And then you share public keys with the other client that you want to talk to. And then you can bring the interface up or you can bring it down and it will automatically set up the routes uh, to send traffic over um, the WireGuard interface. And it was Mm -hmm. super simple. Like I cannot emphasize how simple it was compared to OpenVPN. So it's still routes. In similar, you have to build the routes. You have to have a routing table. It handled for... the routes automatically. Oh, okay. The the uh, setup and teardown of the routes. It's yeah. It and you have your choice. You can either do it manually or you can. There's an uh, option in there to turn it on. And it's right. it's obviously simpler because of the confusion a lot of people have with OpenVPN is it uses an intermediary. You you build the sub routes. Then you have the two routed networks, and they then route over the, for example, the, a secondary one that they have routing for, and then back over to the main network. Mm-hmm. That is, for it's it's almost a harder one to explain. You're right. OpenVPN is substantially more complicated because of that. Well, I think what when Phil saying it automatically routes it, it's uh, it turns those routes on and off yeah. as you turn the interfaces up and down. Uh, Thank you. And so <laughs> it's it's still the same thing where you're going to have to. Build a route at some point right. to say, you know, because what we do is when you set up this, you say, well, the uh, VPN server I'm connecting to, the WireGuard server, has these networks behind it. And you do that part of the, the configuration. Then every time you turn it on, then it automatically says, okay, now we're going down the tunnel to get yeah. to those networks. And that's the same thing of what OpenVPN does. And you have your option of either to do a split route, where it's, it's called split routing, where just those networks go down the VPN tunnel, or you can say everything goes down the VPN right. tunnel. But what makes OpenVPN more complicated is if you have your first network, network A and network B, 
OpenVPN creates an intermediary network with its own route in between them, and then it shares those routes because you bridge things across to each one through the intermediary. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what does make OpenVPN, and of course my videos on it are much longer because that explaining that concept of what the private OpenVPN ranges are as opposed to just adopting it like IPsec does in mm-hmm. the normal ranges, it's an extra layer they have. So it creates complexities. <laughs> yeah, okay. But no, awesome. WireGuard is definitely... Uh, it running in the kernel and being default built in, and it does have Windows clients for those wondering. And again, that'll come in Linux kernel 5.6, probably probably in the summer. Yeah. Okay, cool. Very cool. ThinkStation P520 Workstation from Lenovo with Ubuntu shipped on there. I mean, I see mm-hmm. a couple, uh, I see a System76 across the table from me right now, and a Dell, and I am running a Lenovo. And, you know, obviously System76 being the big open source company out there, and there's a couple other ones out there that are pushing some of the open source hardware. And it's, Dell was probably one of the first I remember from big companies doing it. Uh, that that sounds familiar to me, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Lenovo has been well-known but not documented uh, in by them, I should say. Well-known mm-hmm. in the market, like, hey, which Lenovo should I get that runs Linux? And there's a pretty good list that the community maintains, and Ubuntu themselves has their hardware compatibility list, and Lenovo topping it. And Lenovo finally is kind of saying, yeah, you can run Linux on these, and we're going to ship it with there. So that's actually pretty cool. That is cool. S- saves you some money for a Windows license. But these are some pretty high-end workstations that start at $54.99 for a workstation. Oh, so man. they're $5,000 plus uh, really nice high-end workstations with 128 gigs of DDR4 and... Um, terabyte m2 mvmes and all kinds of fun stuff so really nice uh really high-end hardware but hey it supports linux and that's something it's nice to know from the manufacturer that it works out of the box yeah i only had minimal problems uh with the latest kernel there's no problems there was minimal problems even with my lenovo uh the touchpad didn't work because there wasn't a driver for it that's the only problem Mm -hmm. i have with mine like out of the box but with the new I, kernel, it's built in. I remember way back uh, when it was when IBM ThinkPads had yeah. all this custom hardware in it. Yes, and uh, you could never get Linux running right on it. Oh yeah, they, or you couldn't get like the whole like touch bars or whatever at the top could never work. Mm-hmm. There's always kinds of weirdness. Overall, mm-hmm. the market um, has changed because it seems like well, there's less weird hardware and things uh the stuff's more commonplace the trackpads are usually and the reason it's in the kernels because it was a newer trackpad they put on these models but it was just a matter of time before it made it through to the kernel because it's commonly used on many many different devices now. right so Very and cool. by the way the uh, back-end bus has been is what drives that uh everything's connected to usb instead of through proprietary different bus interfaces that's actually what i think drove some of the compatibility hmm. is having a much more standard way that everything interfaces so yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've got uh, Ubuntu Touch is shaping up nicely. Uh, so my for, when I first saw this, I thought, Ubuntu Touch, isn't the, the Ubuntu phone, like, gone? Like, they yes. didn't really do anything with it? So Pine 64 phones, the Pine phone, yes. is, uh, is running the Ubuntu Touch on it pretty well. I'm really thinking about getting one of these to, so I can have my online, offline life. You're right. And I say offline life, but I still want to be online, but not me. Um, not me as Google knows me, because Google knows me all too well. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, thing, It would even be good as like a backup phone. You know, the, yeah. the Pine 64 phones, they're, they're pretty cheap, or the Pine phone, mm-hmm. uh, or relatively cheap compared to other, um, you know, flagship phones. And uh, I'm 
it, running straight Linux on it is uh, is pretty. Um, it's you know, looking a lot better. Like they have it. a video that we'll have linked in the show notes. Um, the Unity A interface is fairly responsive, and it's getting to be a more viable something to think about option. Now, with more companies moving towards a mobile uh, web experience with HTML5, um, I've noticed even some of the Android apps aren't really Android apps anymore. Uh, they're wrappers that bring the website pulled into the app. So you may have an icon for the app, but all the app is is a window web view uh pulling in HTML5 to give you functionality. And as that becomes the norm, application development changes unless there's a need for local storage, but even there's facilitating of that with HTML5. It's one of the Mm -hmm. options you have. So things like this become very viable, and uh, Google could lose their grip on the market. Uh, Yeah. I can see the the Pine phone being kind of like a hacker's kind of phone also. Or hacker as in like people that like to play with hardware. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it's not just Ubuntu Touch that will run on it. There's, oh, yeah. Um, the Postmark. Uh, yeah. Postmarket OS, I think is what it's called. Postmark OS. Postmark yeah. OS. And KDE Neon, or the Plasma Mobile setup, and then uh, Loon OS also. Yeah. So, so. you've got different options on there. I, I think the ultimate that would be really cool to get to is... Uh, I can't, is it one of the weird companies like Ericsson or one of those had this idea for a while and unfortunately Samsung dropped it because they followed suit with this. These have these laptops that you could just set the phone in. It's like a shell with mm-hmm. a keyboard and a um, screen and a battery and you would just mount the phone in and all it was doing is taking the screen and bringing it over. Yeah. And uh, we'd actually gotten some of those dropped off for recycling and they were cool to play with. Um, you, you got one of the phones and you plugged it in and boom, the phone operating system would just come on the screen. But yeah, it's once really it's running cool. Linux, now the laptop can be this lightweight and I'm not using two devices. It's just one and the same. Yeah. There's actually talk about, um, isn't it the la- latest version or the next version of the Samsung phone is going to have that dock? That same thing that you can plug it in. They have or it? Or it's not the exact same thing, but it has like an HDMI where you can plug it into a yes. regular monitor. Oh, that's pretty cool. They have a splitter for it. I My understanding is the ones that are out, but they're not – the Samsung says they're not going to keep developing it. So there was mm. this big controversy. They released some of them, and you can get some of these. You can get the splitter, but then allegedly they – kibosh development out of the blue just no one knows why they decided they're not going to now oh, which is very recent announcement i seen that i just didn't read the articles i seen the controversy back and forth and i'm like well do it or don't guys like i like the concept one device and then i can just oh wow, this is too small of a screen let me plug it into my dock here and uh, oh look everything's here yeah yeah <laughs> one device to rule them all cool in concept maybe we'll see if it pans out uh, so this one is very near and dear to my heart. This is the culmination of about two and a half years of work. Um, Let's Encrypt, uh, the Oak Certificate Transparency Log, is now included in Google Chrome uh, version 78 and the Apple Safari browser. So what does this mean for you as just um, a browser user? Well, not much. But for Let's Encrypt the organization, it means that we get to own our own uptime. Every publicly trusted certificate authority, such as Sec2Go, Let's Encrypt, DigiCert, the list goes on and on, we all have to submit our certificates to a certificate transparency log to make sure that we're not accidentally issuing for, let's say, Google.com. And now that we run our own log, we get to own a portion of our uptime instead of being beholden to other uh, certificate transparency logs. So if... If Tom's CT log is down for some reason and I can't submit a certificate to it, well, then that means I can't issue any more certificates until Tom comes back online. Uh-huh. Um, 
So it's an this, interesting problem. Yep. Uh, so this is uh, very exciting uh, for us and the PKI world. Yes, to be able to have your own. Yep. I get it now. And all other publicly trusted certificate authorities can now use Oak as well. And uh, we've been doing tons and tons of work uh, to make it more stable, um, make updates happen super easily. It's, I think it's uh, pretty exciting. And I think it's cool because I can imagine the anger of when is your stuff going to be back up? We have things to do and you, we can't submit certificates. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, Let's Encrypt is definitely in the critical path of the Internet now. Um, yeah, it's it's it, a force. <laughs> it's a force. Uh you know, I believe, and you can probably speak more to this, uh, that Let's Encrypt has now become embedded on lots of little devices as just like the default way they're going to do certificates. Like even some IoT I'd seen released with that, uh, a small one-off firewall brands. Um, Asus uh, firewalls come yeah. with a Let's Encrypt plugin, uh, for better or worse. Um, had lots nice. of conversation with their engineers about that one. But yeah, we find uh, people using us in new and exciting ways almost every day yeah <laughs> don't now just to don't think because asus is using let's encrypt certs that they make a secure router um just read about the asus tomato disaster recently <laughs> so <laughs> oh yeah yeah so um but they at least are using qu- good stuff they may not be stacking it together in a proper order but at least they are making some good sound choices <laughs> Uh, so, something that we troubleshoot a lot is uh, people come to our community forum and ask about their Synology NAS uh, mm. that they have exposed to the internet. And by default, you can get a Let's Encrypt certificate to yep. protect that traffic. Mm. Yep, they do offer that. Please stop exposing your Synology NAS with weak passwords to the internet. We've dealt with that too. Yes. Oh, it will not save you from weak passwords. You'll just have an encrypted certificate. <laughs> And, and then and then the bad actors will not have to click through the uh, accept this risk before they type in admin admin and and do bad things with your Synology. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> your data uh, is now my data. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. All too often. LibreOffice six point released six point four release and this is what's new. They did a lot of little stuff for there. Um, they are going to. And they say almost perfect support for DocX, Excel, SX, and PPTX files because Microsoft got fancy and added X to them. It doesn't mean extended LAN like VXLAN. I don't know what it means. They just put an X at the end of it. Because they all became XML files. Oh. That's the the whole metadata is an XML. Okay. uh, And then your actual, like, so all formatting is based in XML. Got it. And you would think XML, and it'd be easy to parse. Uh, it wouldn't have taken this long because they did that. When I mean, a long time ago, long they time. started like, doing it. But yeah, two thousand nine or something. Yeah, but it's ten years later before we can figure out how to decipher what Microsoft did with their weird formats and get things more compatible with it. Yeah, it's coming though. We're here with six point four, um, which is good. So uh, you don't have to, you know, buy the. By the way, if you, I think they may have removed it completely by now. But if you try to buy Microsoft Office, everything is sold as a subscription now. Actually, mm-hmm. outright buying it, I think you have to contact sales now. I think yeah. they finally removed the final pieces that said buy here. Um, I think I think if you could buy it from OEM, so like uh, if you buy something from Best Buy, my father-in-law did that the other day. He bought a computer and, and it, it's uh, sold as a subscription even there now. 
was people uh, were mad about that because they sell you what looks like a, a CD installer with nothing in it. It's a key, and it takes your site, and you have to sign up on your site and, uh, and do the subscription. But it lets you buy the subscription in advance, buying the thing that you get from them. Ah, uh, that was it. Yes. It's very confusing. I bought a couple computer games uh, many, many years ago, and it just it was a CD case. I had um, a box and everything, and inside of it was just a CD key with a link to Steam. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. And Microsoft's done the same thing now. Um, you, It's really kind of confusing for the end user to be able to do this because they're just like they thought they were getting the product and they would license it and it doesn't work that way now. Um, but it looks like it does. So some people are actually probably okay with this until the subscription gets renewed. Other things they've added in LibreOffice, so you can avoid this entire confusion about Microsoft and right. how they sell things. Um, QR code generator, app icon in the start center, um, automatic Redaction. I wonder how that works. It says that in here, but it doesn't explain what automatic redaction is. But it does have, if you're not familiar with it, um, they've got the way you can do different comments, and they've updated a lot of that. So if you're uh, collaboratively working on something and a teacher has some comments about the paragraph you wrote, uh, then that can be added and removed. It looks like it's probably part of the redaction part of on there. Yeah, commenting is really nice for teacher and student-based oh, yeah. uh, papers and stuff, yeah. Yes. I have... Uh, I now have occasionally commissioned writers, um, for example, the right to repair. I've been ranting about that a little bit, as so has some other people on the Internet. And I commissioned a writer for that, and that's how we collaboratively uh. did it was with uh, comments because there was things I had questions about to make sure I was clear on before I ranted. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, The QR code generator is pretty cool. I, that's been around for a long time. I was doing it. 10 years ago in command line, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's cool is uh, recently I've seen people start doing it as uh, the Wi-Fi password is in a QR code. Yes. So your phone, you just take your, your camera, like an Android, yep. take the camera and point it at that, and it'll see the, it, it'll read that QR code, and it will say, hey, do you want to connect to this Wi-Fi right now? You say yes or no, and then it'll put the password and everything in for you. I I think this is where LibreOffice does a good job of, because uh, this privacy concern comes up quite a bit. It's got a checkbox to enable or disable sending crash reports. And uh, some people, and I please encourage people, unless there's some absolute reason not to do this, please send crash reports. Um, I've seen a few of these open source projects that have uh, started adding collection of statistics, anonymized statistics, because, and I've talked to the dev teams, they're like, we just don't have enough feedback from anyone on our products. Mm -hmm. And then people getting overly cautious on it always want to not send it, but it's like, this is really hurting development because you're not telling developers like what problems there are. It, other than forums, it don't work. It crash lots. Right. <laughs> to further drive home why you should send crash reports, there is a very interesting Darknet Diaries episode, uh, episode 57, called MS08067. Yes. Fantastic. Wonderful episode. I don't want to spoil it. Go listen to Darknet Diaries, episode 57. But crash reports are the method by which they were able to track stuff to make for the greater good trust me yeah. you'll, you'll yeah. be on the same side that it, why they were good to send crash reports so when it says uh what were what was i doing right before this crash happened is it like <laughs> i stood up and got some coffee oh, i love those i made memes like been, that been there done that yep. yep. i was eating a taco <laughs> <laughs> yes because sometimes sometimes there's not always useful information in crash reports i won't lie but at least if there's some. And the automated ones actually probably do a better job because if you listen to the end users figure it out, they will put things like eating a taco in there. <laughs> I don't have a therapist, but I do use that for the occasional therapeutic release. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 
So lots of good things on LibreOffice. It's uh, alive and well and out, probably, I think, outside the U.S., probably in massive amounts of use. <laughs> All right. Uh, so the latest update to System D it now has a feature where it can start managing home directories. So they want to, you know, they want everybody to start using this system. And uh, it's kind of confusing to me about this uh you know, so it's using a, a dot identity file to keep track of different things users are doing, but is it getting rid of the home drive completely, like your home folder, or what is this doing? Do I you think this know? is like the configuration of your home folder. So you can you can have different users that have like a Lux encrypted volume, and they can define how they want their home directory right. to be configured. They can say, okay, I want to use it with uh, FS crypt, or I want to have a volume in my home folder that runs like BTRFS for whatever reason, or I want to have like auto-mounted SIFS uh, mounts come online only when I'm in some folder. Oh, that, that can be handy. So it, it seems kind of cool. Um, they're going to call it systemd-homed. Um, and apparently it, yeah. it's going uh, apparently it's going to make it easy to migrate home directories between uh servers. I don't know. It already seems kind of easy to do that. It's uh 21,000 lines of code being added into the system DOS. I mean, mm-hmm. system D. Yeah. <laughs> We're about to get savaged again, is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. <laughs> A reference uh, to Michael Lucas's book. <laughs> I'll I'll have to play Savage with it. Bites. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I am a uh, yes. Now, in in a newer version of System D that does exist, there's something really cool I found the other day. It's a service file security analyzer. So let's say I'm running some sort of web server daemon like Apache or Nginx. I'll have an Apache.service or an Nginx.service file that defines how the process starts, stops, and all this other stuff. And the security analyzer, it can tell you, oh, you are running with these Linux kernel capabilities. Maybe you don't want to do that. Mm. And then you can iteratively drop capabilities. You can set up an automatic ch root, and systemd handles it for you, which is slick. You can prevent uh, your process from writing to certain folders. You can mark the folders that it can read and write to. And... Systemd will give you a score on how safe it thinks your process definition is. That's interesting. Pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, that one comes by default with CentOS 8. Hmm. I think I it was that. like version 239 or something. Yeah. I see, like, system admins, I can see that could be really handy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But for uh, for home users, I don't know if that's ever going to come to play. Not yeah. so useful, no. Uh, that's cool, though. Very neat. Um, so speaking of systems administrators and uh, virtual machines, the XCPNG project um, is now officially joining the Zen project, uh, which is an open source hypervisor hosted at the Linux Foundation. Um, so they're being included in the family. And what this means is that the Zen project is going to recognize XCPNG as the de facto open source Zen hypervisor uh, distribution. Um, 
joining the Zen project won't change XCPNG uh, project very much. Um, there's going to be continued uh, resource investment. Um, they're hiring six new developers for uh, 2020, and it's going to allow XCPNG to contribute more to the Zen project itself, which will then help XCPNG and all of the layers of Zen that it touches. Hmm. Um, so it's a nice uh, feedback cycle that they've gotten themselves. Very cool. So I Zen will continue yeah. to do many, many videos on it as well. Oh, I, re cool. I really like it. I remember when I had to use um, uh, Citrix's whatever the heck that was. Who cares now because it's long forgotten. Right. Uh, XCPNG is the future. If you're using Zen, uh, go with it. Yeah. So this is kind of like Zen is the uh, the hypervisor like backend. Like if you wanted to run just Zen, it's like a lot of like command line. Yeah. Love. Yes, it is. But if you want like the the fancy GUI and, and other options and you go with X, XP, CNG? No. Or XCPNG? This is where things get a bit complicated. So you have XCPNG is the base OS with the Zen hypervisor. So it's based on CentOS current version. Well, beta is 8.1, be out really soon. The There is no UI on top of that, really. You can start and stop VMs in the command line uh, with a little menu-driven system, and that's about it. On top of that, where all the UI comes in, is a separate project, again, called Zen Orchestra, but exactly the same dev team. They're, they mm. are the same people developing it, and they even have an auto-deployment from the command line, and you can run a curl script, and it'll even import and install the virtual machine, because inside of there, your first virtual machine you kick off would be, for example, the Zen Orchestra system, which orchestrates all the functionality of it and extends all the features of it so you don't have to do everything in the command line. And let's say you are just a home gamer, you've got a lab in your basement or something, and you say, well, I want to try out Zen. I hear uh, these guys talk about it on this podcast. I would try it with XCPNG and Zen Orchestra. It's yeah. very slick, very easy to get into. And then you get to see metrics of all of your different VMs um, as they're running, and you can click start and stop on all these things, and they've got templates that you can uh, import. Yep. Does Again, it, a lot of cool stuff. Does it support hardware pass-through? It does, but unfortunately that is not a UI function. Um, this is where a lot of people really want me to do videos on Proxmox, and I just it, – because it's a little bit more popular in the home lab world because I guess there's checkboxes in Proxmox to pass through certain devices. The way you have to do it in Zen, I've done videos on how to do hard drive pass-through, for example, and it's not hard. It's not like really in-depth command lines here, uh, but, for example, you do have to block – the main kernel in DOM0, as in the XCP engine kernel itself, you say, don't see this PCI device, blacklist it so it doesn't load it, and then you pass it through. So it's not uh. like you first have to identify the device, blacklist it, and then pass it through to the particular VM. But it absolutely fully supported you can do that. Uh, but there's not like one checkbox that go, hey, take this particular device and say pass it through here. But from a commercial standpoint, it supports uh, SRIOV, so you can pass through supported network cards that support that. Uh, you can pass through supported GPUs that support that. Yeah, GPUs, that. Uh, what I was thinking of. Yeah, 
Um, I plan to do some videos on some updated GPUs because there's some older ones like the NVIDIA Tesla cards have become a little bit more affordable um, and you can pass them through. And if you're not familiar with like how SRIOV works, that pass-through is slightly different because it's pass-through designed to take, let's say, a video card and pass it through to multiple VMs at the same time. Mm, nice. And if you built in two Zen servers and you put the same uh, Tesla card in both, you can actually do HA failover and pass the VM between there because the hardware doesn't live inside pass through directly it can be passed through and moved and mm. scalability is the key to zen orchestra one zen orchestra can install can manage thousands of resource pools thousands of xcpng or i don't know if it's thousands the, the number's big we'll just yeah. say that thousands of vms can be managed across different resources uh an example would be one of our clients manages at their one main hub three remote data centers with one xcpng install Nice. So, nice. Uh, and you can even pass, uh, provided you have the bandwidth to do so, you can pass live running VMs across the internet uh, and yeah. over there, provided you have bandwidth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that may be a challenge, but I do know it uh, It works fine here. Matter of fact, right behind you, Tony, that 10 gig test I spoke of earlier, that's all connected to XCPNG. And nice. I was showing how you can move uh, VMs. My staff was impressed with how fast. I think I can move a small VM in about 15 seconds, uh, live running between servers. Define small VM. Uh, 16 gigs. Okay. So, however, hmm. it, it runs at line speed and then has Z. Uh, they actually adopted the Z standard uh, compression. So it compresses the transfer. So it's not just a 10 gig uh, transfer. It's 10 gig and compressed transfer across, which makes it equally impressive for speed. Yeah. As long as you got the CPU bandwidth, and we do. So, <laughs> all right. So, very cool stuff. It, it's an awesome project. Uh, so, definitely keep an eye on it. Next. <laughs> oh, Linus. Linus Torvald says, don't use ZFS, but he doesn't seem to understand why. I, I kind of get it from his perspective. And uh, any company, namely Oracle, who holds certain patents on certain ZFS things, and any company such as Oracle who uses their legal department as a profit center um, is, pro <laughs> <laughs> is probably wise to, if you don't know, uh, and it takes a team of lawyers to decipher anything Oracle's going to do, probably I understand the caution for it. So this is something that a lot of people had problems with. And basically, in January 2019, senior kernel developer uh, Greg Koa Hartman fairly defended a Linux kernel commit, which uh, dispelled exporting certain kernel symbols to non-GPL loadable kernel modules. And there's some incompatibilities in the licensing on this. Um, mostly this is to um, raise awareness that is a concern, but there are people besides Linus who is, for all of his amazing talents at coding, uh, he does not have a background in law. So there's some better explanations on here. And it's complicated. This is a very long read. I'm not going to mm. take the time to read all of it, but I will at least tell you that there are some incompatibilities with licenses. There are the legal side of the open source world is working hard at this to solve all of these little problems is more, you know, it's, it, it makes a great headline that Linus hates ZFS is what many places ran with it. That's why I chose the Ars Technia article who says, no, let's give you the more concise opinion, which by the way, it's not a yes or no. It's a 20 minutes of reading a lot of <laughs> things with it. So one of the things that I'm confused about is, is OpenZFS and ZFS on Linux the same thing? Uh-uh. Okay. So that's where things get confusing again. 
And I, I like it because right away I see the number of comments. There's over 500 comments on this article because <laughs> it is not an easy topic. We could dedicate an entire show if I would to dive into the legal side. We could do a whole Fresh Licks episode just on open source licenses or even this particular controversy. <laughs> Tom, I think you could make literal zettabytes of data about oh yes, <laughs> uh, talking about ZFS. And, and I can assure you that Oracle has. <laughs> <laughs> um. I gotta, I gotta find the quote. Michael Lucas told me who to ask for it, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna maybe even interview them. Uh, one of the original developers of ZFS, they do call it the billion dollar file system because that's how much development time has gone into it. Wow. So, um, but that is also where the worrisome comes in because of its value and Oracle's. Um, if they can think that if there's value in it, and their lawyers are able to squeeze it out of anything. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, I just wanted to leave it. We are aware of it. I don't think I know people contacted me directly. I don't think anyone contacted the show directly on it. But I had a, uh, it was a topic of my forums. It was a thing that many email contact forms were filled out to say, Tom, did you see Linus said to do it? And you love ZFS, Tom. How do these two things compute to you? You love Linux and you love ZFS. So I'm like, calm down. You're conflating things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is a concern, but it by people much smarter than me are being working on this and mitigating it. All right, that's enough of that rant. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so there's this uh, um, uh, ransomware out there. It's called Emotet, and uh, they this Emotet seems to be around for a while, but there's new news about it. Uh, it so, Tom, you were saying earlier that it kind of like evolves its code. Yes. Or, or hackers are evolving its code. It's got a strong base, and it just keeps getting better. <laughs> right. So the latest thing it's doing is now. It will scan for Wi-Fi Wi-Fi networks around you. It will try to brute force those Wi-Fi networks, and then sends off some kind of signal like that. <laughs> no. Uh, then once it hacks into that other network, then it tries to uh, hack into other computers on that network and uh, spread its ransomwares to other computers. <sighs> it is. So I, I don't know if I can really say it's getting better. I would say the code is evolving. It's getting worse for people. Experiencing Emotet would probably be the better way to describe this. Yeah. Um, certainly uh, a problem in the world. I know because I spent some time over uh, at Huntress Labs and sitting with their head of threat ops. It is one of the big concerns that they have frequently is uh, when they see Emotet because it's the precursor to um, terrible things happening at places mm -hmm. infected with it. Uh, Hunter's Labs is a they they measure indicators of compromise using endpoint detection systems, so they see things at the endpoint level. Once they start seeing it pop on computers, um, life's going to be very bad very soon for the the <laughs> systems getting infected with it. So right, yeah, this is where something uh, having a big sim at like an enterprise level sim, like if they could start keying into uh, um, uh, Wi-Fi authentication failures yeah. right before. And then try to key into watching uh, others. They can try to get get a hold of it and, before it spreads too far. And another kind of another aspect of it, and this is why Huntress does it the way they do, is they're an endpoint detection system because it mm -hmm. has to start at an endpoint on the system. So once you, and this is one of the reasons we use their product is we look at the endpoint because if the endpoints are getting infected, because um, sometimes by the time the sim notifies you. Oh, yeah. We're just letting you know you're hosed. I mean, right. look at all these indicators of compromise all over your network. It started with uh, one person in accounting, and now it's your entire stack. Right. So, yeah, it's early warning. Early detection is always the goal. Security in layers, defense in depth, all the usual phrases we like to use in security, but it's definitely a really bad worm. 
Um, what I think would be mailware. Yeah, what I think would be cool is if they had somebody had a version of this that doesn't have the ransomware in it, where you could test against your your network, like your own networks that you own, see oh. how see how secure your password uh, is, let me look real and quick. see I... if it'll try to brute force, uh, see how long it takes uh, before it can brute force your own Wi-Fi. So um, a little bit of history. It started as a banking trojan, if I'm not mistaken. It was one of the um, ones that used to do, do. Uh, yeah, started in 2014. I believe a lot of the source code might be available for it, which is what's mm. caused it uh, to be out there so much. And it's just the cybercrime as a service is um, those type of people are using it. So it's well, well funded. Yeah. Um, some of the cyber criminal groups, I believe, have used it uh, to the point of almost a billion dollars in ransom collected, like a billion with a B Jeez. in ransom collected. Now, it's paid out across lots of different cyber criminals that get involved in this. Um, it's a crazy thing, but it's, it is insane, the scale and scope of it. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely a big mess. And for those of you that heard the um, Star Wars, Star Trek noise. <laughs> the alert going off. That is my on-call for work. Um, so sorry about that. We will f- lower that audio in post. Yeah. Good news is the world seems to not be on fire because Phil didn't leave and run out the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Phil. Shell check, eight-year retrospective. Yeah, uh, Shell check is a really, really interesting project. Um, for those of you that don't know, it's a static analysis tool that points out common problems and pitfalls in your shell scripts. Um, so let's say anything that you write in a bash shell or just the sh shell. Um, so Shell check got its start as a uh, Shell check linter on IRC. Um, the oh the bash uh, room on Freenode. Um, it still runs there, and it's as active as, active as ever. Um, it was the developer's uh, hobby project, and since it only ran on his his own server, he could do it in any language that he wanted, and he could ignore popular languages and familiarity and stuff like that. So he chose Haskell. And he's got... Um, this whole long, very interesting retrospective and all of the things that he learned and things that uh, he thought he did well and a lot of things that he would do differently if he was to re-implement it. Mm. Um, But I really like running shell check uh, when I commit any of my scripts to uh, change change management or even like a Git repository. Um, And Tony's got a script that uh, we've been poking at um, sorry about that noise. Uh, that's my other on call. Yeah. Uh, that we've been poking at, and we're gonna run shell check against it uh, right after the show. All oh, right. Very yeah. Cool. I remember hearing about this a long time ago, and uh, I always forget to to run my stuff through it. But it says it's available on GitHub. Does that mean if you have a GitHub project, you can have it automatically run against it, like as part of your check-in? Or I think that's the case now, too. Yeah. Um, a lot of people implement it in, let's say, uh, Jenkins or Travis or CircleCI or some sort of continuous integration tool. Yeah. But there might be a native GitHub way to just run it against a commit that you um, send to GitHub. I personally use it. Um, on 
like whatever virtual machine I'm working on or something. But you can also take your script and send it to a, a shell check website as a service. Hmm. So there's many options, uh, many ways to use this thing. Cool. Um, so there's a web version that I'm staring at right now, but it says you can also install it on your uh, PC. Yes. yes. And to go a step further, kind of it's in the same uh, matter. GitHub has also, uh, through Microsoft's acquisition and through several purchases Microsoft has made and done integrations for this and offered it as a free service, they're looking for overall coding mistakes in many different languages for any projects that are on GitHub. That way they can let you know if you did something like insecurely in the code. So they're doing this at scale as a service because they realize there's a lot of major open source projects and code auditing them can be kind of difficult. So using these automation tools that skim through the code and look for common things. Some of my understanding in this, as we covered this on how they got hacked, is there was also a, a counter uh, group that was doing this, but looking for code mistakes at scale through GitHub, then to find ways to exploit them. So it's <laughs> no. not like the con- the concept was working in both ways because, like, hey, we know that they uh, implemented this wrong at this last change. This is our opportunity to do so. But then the counter now is that they've built in these automation tools to do it. Um, I don't know if you know this as well, but they've also implemented a lot of this in GitHub. Uh, there's an automated tool that removes your bucket keys that you accidentally uploaded to GitHub now and your SSH private keys that you accidentally uploaded to yeah. GitHub. <laughs> so they've uh, done a lot of that to help keep you s- from yourself, <laughs> 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 which is great. I, I think that's um, that's an, it's a next iterative code of you. This is where I think like that type of system because uh, people, as you know, when you're learning, you make common mistakes or even when you've spent a lot of time learning, you're tired and it's 3 a.m. and you just want to commit and go to bed. <laughs> And you, oh man, yeah, that <laughs> uh, don't don't commit and drive. Don't commit and drive too. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, uh, Michael Lucas is also writing a new book. If you didn't know, it's it's he had get commit murder, and he's got a part two coming out of that. So <laughs> if you don't follow him on that, so it it's full of uh, it's his fiction stuff is full of tech reference. So it's I have not read any fiction books yet, but I plan to read a few of them just because I want to see the humor. <laughs> That's cool. So hanging out with them is humorous enough. So it, I can't imagine it just gets better, I'll assume. <laughs> all right. I'm going to read this little piece here uh, that was written on their site. I really like the way they put this. Patent trolls get paid because short-sighted companies make the decision to pay. Simply put, it is usually cheaper to, in the short run to pay a troll than it is to litigate. It is also cheaper to give a schoolyard bully your lunch money than to visit a doctor. <laughs> the thing is, once you pay the bully, he'll just come back again and again, and eventually that lunch money adds up to a whole lot more than a doctor's visit. In the long run, the best way to deal with a bully is to punch him square in the face. You might take a beating, but if you do it every time, the bully will find easier prey. I, there's some good reasoning there, and the Mycroft, we've talked about this like years ago uh, because people like voice activated things and uh, we don't always necessarily want to send that to Google because, well, that's not gone so well. I think Jay runs this in his house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think he was playing with this as a project as well. Um, But they're under attack from a patent troll. We'll leave a link to all this and they talk about it. And they right away from this patent troll want to shut them down immediately. Um, They did the first thing they did was when they got the notice, they promptly ignored it, which uh, I've never been hit by a patent troll. I've been hit by copyright trolls and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to reply with um, profanity, but I chose to ignore them when I, after learning that was a better route to do. <laughs> um, someone tried to say I was doing copyrighted stuff on my YouTube channel that they had done in a book. And I was like, what? I was unaware of their book. And I had 
I put together a document with reply with prior art, uh, which means I had done this before as a talk. And uh, they tried, they didn't like the titles I had. And it was specifically the Protecting the Digital You is a talk I've given many times about cybersecurity uh, to people to have better OPSEC. And I've been doing the talk for like eight years. And this person came up with a book with the same title. And I'm like, no, they tried to, I'm like, uh, they, that happened in 2018. I was like, but please note, it's 2028 years, 2012 was my first published. So I had prior art. Right. <laughs> Anyways, uh, patent trolls are a real pain. They cost uh, undue money, especially in the open source project. It's once again, um, two things you can do. Vote for patent reform. If you're in any position to do so, that ability comes up. Uh, that matters a lot. Europe still laughs at us because they've figured this out better than we have here in the U.S. Um, but that being said, uh, donate to funds that also help defend against patent trolls. Electron Frontier Foundation, I've always pointed out to them as one of the simplicity. Um, they're just a company. They're just a group of people that really care about many of the things that probably all of our listeners do. So uh, EFF as a whole does it. Uh, they also have other information in the Mycroft one of what can be done about this. So, do they say what uh, what they're asking for, or is that like uh, in the highly confidential? Uh, it's all of it's all been filed in there. I don't think they actually to say the amount they want. They just say you're violating our patent. Hmm. So, and they were they said they waited nothing. So, um, it's it, they know that this attorney firm. That's all this attorney firm does, and. I don't know if you're aware of how this works as well, but I remember uh, digging into this myself. The way these firms are set up, they go around and find out, hey, Tony, I found you had a patent on this. I can loosely interpret this patent completely differently is their motivation, but this patent may not be in use that you hold, so they'll buy it off for you for some extremely reasonable amount of money. And for you, if you're like, well, I wasn't doing anything because it's not a great idea or it was too broad, I can never implement it, people sell their patents to them. And then they collect all this intellectual property, or sometimes they collect a group of pieces of intellectual property to make one super case against the company they do this um it's like the the guy lost the but cost of fortune he went after uh, adam carolla who runs one of the largest uh podcast networks out there if you didn't know mm. and he's a back end uh, he hosts a lot of the major podcasts well they said they owned the right to putting audio on the internet and uh, they bought up all the patents related to it, and it cost them a fortune in legal fees. So, yeah, it's a mess. There's a fantastic image from Aliens uh, with a quote from the movie in this article. Um, <laughs> it's Ripley stating, nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Yes. Talking about what to do to patent trolls. Yes, uh-huh. I agree with that. Uh, I'm not supporting violence against them, but boy... It's they make it tempting. Well, that's <laughs> hilarious because Mycroft states that it's better to be aggressive with pet and trolls, such as shooting, stabbing, and hanging them. Yes, <laughs> they they have certainly um, yes. Patent trolls have cost so much money. The only people who win in the patent troll uh, world is the lawyers. They take away money and focus from a open source project. They put it on the patent trolls for a while, and uh, the legal teams buy new cars at the end of it all and go on vacation um, for both sides because they the defense team has to be spent a lot of money. The legal team, which hopefully loses on the, the troll side, uh, usually just costs the money, which their internal legal teams, because that's usually what these companies are dedicated to do. There's um, It's been shot down, but there's been a couple patent squatting laws that they try to do where a company has to actually have the patent in use to actually sue. They can't do it. Right now, you can literally just buy a patent and just go after people. You don't even have to be using it. 
and uh, that's been a historical problem sometimes where abuse of the patent system has occurred because it's an anti-competitive feature. Like a company will patent a better process but not use it because it's more profitable to use the current process. But they know a competitor would use this process, so therefore by patenting it, it blocks it and it hurts consumers. It is, it is always their argument it's helping consumers, but when companies patent squat essentially only to block competition, the consumer just pays more. It's as simple as that, and it's sometimes to keep their grip on the market. And it's the uh, history of Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they're, they're, they're um, notorious for such behaviors as well in their past, which makes Bill a controversial figure. <laughs> Anyways, I think that's the – is that the – There's one more. One more. Sorry. Yep. Uh, so I was uh, – I'm thinking about replacing my free NAS with something different, and I wanted something kind of small and, and low-powered. Uh, so Tom and I were look, look, talking about this before, and I found this Pi Hat that uh, is has four SATA ports that goes on, uh, and the project I saw it on was they built it with a Raspberry Pi and it had this neat case and controller board on top and everything. Um, and as I, I found this uh, Linux Gizmos article, that this same Pi Hat, works with uh, quite a few of those small uh, system boards. Yeah, it works with either the Raspberry Pi or um, the Rock Pi 4. um, And there's a few other ones that it's talking about. Uh, And I I don't know whether there's just different versions of the same board that will work with those other ones. But it looks really cool. And with uh, being USB 3, it actually, the bus goes across you know, we're still getting uh, 800 megs a second. Yeah. So it can be they're, – they're, um, they can do max theoretical potential. My understanding from uh, real-world usage, they're not quite that fast. But if you need a inexpensive way that is low power to store a bunch of data, um, it is a good choice. And low power, mm-hmm. you know, that especially as I've learned um, – Power prices vary dramatically from even state to state here in the U.S. Uh, so that's definitely something to keep in mind. And uh, if you're outside the U.S., it becomes even more dramatic. Some places pay uh, sometimes as much as 10 times what we pay for electricity. So wow, yeah, Michigan, we're on the way cheap side here. So we're, we're running old stuff and cranking things on. <laughs> yeah, I think we're at uh, 14.6 or 14.9 cents per kilowatt hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, natural gas, that's way more expensive. Yeah. So electricity is kind of cheaper. But either way, it's a, it's a cool project. It definitely will solve the problem. Um, as I noticed, my phone was going off. It's because my, my car's charging right now. Charging on weekends, it turns out, is only $0.06 cents versus $0.11 cents during Ooh. the week. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, but uh, they're really cool projects. I, I was debating about building one myself uh, just to create something also quiet. Quiet matters a lot yeah. sometimes. I like quiet. <laughs> Right. So it, so we were the debate we are going back and forth with is do you do a, a arm board, you know, uh, system on a chip kind of board or do you go with uh, a um, mini ITX kind of setup? And what did you say you found it was like $50 difference? Yeah, there wasn't a substantial difference if you pick out um, – and I'll pick out – ASRock I think makes some of the least expensive. But ASRock uh, mini ITX boards, I think Supermicro might have a few of them as well. Um, but either one of those, Mini ITX and Supermicro specifically, now I'm thinking about it, uh, they have a really cool case with RAID slots and everything in it with mm. the board all mounted um, for a relatively cheap price. Then you just add memory, and then you have to decide what OS you want to go with on there. Um, Tony has uh, had his aggravations with yeah. FreeNAS lately. 
Yeah, yeah, aggregations is is right. And I want to have uh, <laughs> relatively the same amount of storage, but with FreeNAS, uh, there's a lot of hidden costs that uh, you think, well, I'll just throw it on a, a PC or something. Well, you need if you're going to have uh, 10 terabytes, you need to have what do they say? Uh, uh, a gig per a terabyte? Well, or yes, more than no. that. Is it two gigs per terabyte? And I have a forty terabyte system with eight gigs of RAM at home that works perfectly fine. So really, yes. There's there. This is where um, IX Systems has done a good job of creating blog posts that um, really contradict forum posts by uh, keyboard commandos who punch keys really hard and typing caps of you have to have one gig. So these adages that have been because someone's forum posts have long and they're very helpful on forums so they have a high score which gives them the uh online authority to say things that people think were true there's actually some things that aren't true about cfs hmm. it will use as much memory as you give it for caching and there are edge circumstances where if you don't have enough memory but you have like i don't know five million files indexed it will have to swap memory because it has to load file indexes in there so it's not as much about the amount of storage as it has to do with what you're storing and being able to have that accessible at a reasonable speed but my um we built a steam library on my freenas mini which runs an atom processor with two cores a very sad mm. and slow two cores at that and it's uh, with eight gigs of ram it's able to run the steam library so i built a 10 terabyte steam library for my son <laughs> um, and we have 40 terabytes of storage in it but it has eight gigs of ram and it's running plex and it's running transmission for uh, torrents because, you know, I like to seed the latest distros. And <laughs> <laughs> and I have a dedicated jail called Alcatraz because – jail. Um, and it's <laughs> uh, where I do things like when I want to SSH to my house to do something, it's the only computer that's left on all the time is my NAS at home. So uh, it works all very well, and it still has three gigs dedicated to caching after all that overhead. Wow, nice. So it is possible to do it. It is possible to make it work. Um, but, yes, the I agree with you because I before I read all these blogs and spent as much time proving myself wrong, I would have told you you were correct. And it wasn't that long ago that <laughs> I believe that person in the forums as well. <sighs> all right. So give ZFS another try. Or try – there's a few other ones out there. Open Media Vault is really popular. Um, people seem to like it, and I believe they do have an ARM compilation for it and a lot of documentation. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I saw that. There's uh, the, the the one video I saw. So the project somebody was doing was that they were uh, doing o, OVM. It you know, is Vault. Uh, well supported. Like OMD. it's got um, it's got a community around it. The developers active. There's recent releases, etc. So it's a it's a viable alternative. But it, to my knowledge, it does not run ZFS. It runs just right. standard Linux RAID. Yep. Which isn't bad. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. All right. Awesome. So you have been listening to episode 320, RTC Wake. And uh, if you'd like to email us, you can send us an email to show at smlr.us. Um, this is Phil Parada, Tom Lawrence, and Tony Bemis. Thank you. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at SNLR.us. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. <laughs>